0: Good morning, guys. How about you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10? I'm going to begin right there. We, uh, I'm just going to jump right in. We got a lot of stuff to cover here this morning. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, you can go to raise your hand. Arshas would love to get you a Bible. Uh, we've been in a series on the Gospel of John. We came to Gospel of John chapter 10 last week, uh, specifically verses 14 through 21. It's a little segment where I'll just kind of reiterate a couple important aspects of it. Jesus speaks. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, so I lay down my life for the sheep. And he goes on to say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. He goes on to say the point, he goes, So therefore, uh, there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I have laid down my life. Therefore, and I take it back up again. And this creates a commotion amidst the uh, religious leaders that are around them. So verse 19 tells us a little bit about that. I don't think I have that up on the screen, but just uh, we know that within the context. We looked at all this last week. Uh, three specific things we pointed out with regard to Jesus as a shepherd, which is significant. Number one, it tells us he loves his sheep. Number two, it tells us he lays his life down for his sheep. And thirdly, uh, we saw how he unites the sheep. And so this kind of segues a little bit into the bigger question that we were trying to tackle last week. And we'll continue today and hopefully we will finish up this little segment here looking at the subject matter that we'll be looking at here today. It's the subject of the sheep that are lost or vulnerable. I want to start with this little segment. So real quick, let's pause real quick on here. Um, if you guys have a question, sorry, go back to this other one. Right here. So uh, if you guys have a question, uh, go ahead and scan that. You're more than welcome to. We were trying to ask some, a bunch of you guys asked a bunch of questions last week. Uh, I was not able to get to them last week and I will likely not be able to get to them this week, but I will get to them next week. So either one or two things will happen. Um, we will get to it next week um, or, which my hope would be to address some time to be able to uh, create some time next uh, week within the context of the sermon or before the sermon, we'll address those. Or I will do some sort of like a podcast or recording or something like that and make it available for you guys through some sort of link that you can go ahead and uh, get that information to But I, I promise you, my promise to you is I will get your questions answered. All right, some of you guys had some really great questions and I think they're noteworthy of being able to to, all of them to be addressed and I will get to them. So, but if you would like more questions answered today or you want to upvote ones that are currently in there, go ahead and scan that and we will get to those. Uh, Next slide. Here's my little pivot thing that I want to talk a little bit about and then we will jump right in. Um, So the subject of Israel. Uh, Israel has had a long history of conflict, unrest, and exile. Uh, Jesus sets himself as the good shepherd who will bring an end to it all. This is the context of what we just read right here. And we want to spend a little time thinking about the subject of Israel's conflict, unrest, and exile. Before we even jump into some of the biblical context with regard to that, let me pray real quick. And then I'm going to just immediately start off with a couple of uh, resources that you guys can consider and think about. But let's pray before we jump in and just ask God's uh, presence and guidance and direction over. Our time here. So, uh, Father, right now we come to you and we thank you, Lord, that we have you as our rock that we can anchor ourselves to. And Lord, in spite of the unsettledness of our world in which we live in today and the chaos and the suffering and the pain and the hardship, um, God, we thank you that we have a hope that's in you. And so we ask right now, Father, that in the midst of a lot of content and information that we would uh, discover your presence as our treasure. And so we commit this time into your hands and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with a couple uh, quick um, references, I guess. Um, I love when I do research. I listen to a very broad array of information. In fact, a lot of times I'll go outside of even my Christian circles. Why? Because a lot of times I already know what the Christian circles are going to say, so I don't need to listen to an echo chamber. I really enjoy listening to a broad swath of voices. These next two that I'll show you, stay on here for just a second. This guy's an atheist. The guy that he's interviewing, Andrew Gold, is is Jewish by origin, so he has some, this is a great podcast by the way, there's some really important stuff that I would suggest just checking out, listening to. Um, he's also just a, a brilliant mind. Um, next slide. Some of you guys are probably familiar with one of the four horses of the apocalypse, or the the four uh, apocalyptic horsemen, right? of the uh, Of the new atheist movement, named Sam Harris. If you're unfamiliar with him, super well known, super brilliant, genius guy. I think he's maybe a neuroscientist, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Am I wrong there? Anybody? No, nobody. You guys just leave me hanging here. Anybody want to help me out? Anyways, the point of the matter is, super smart guy. He's he's not a Christian. There's A lot of stuff I do not agree with him, obviously, as as a person, but he also has a lot of insight and thoughtful uh, processing on the subject here um, in this particular episode. This is the most recent episode that, again, I I like to listen to just a broad swath and hopefully even outside voices, outside of our echo chamber, our evangelical world can be uh, a a means of of help and guidance through some of these uh, subject matter that are, are very dense and very complex and in some cases very confusing. So uh, with that being said, I want to jump in a little bit, and we'll just take a look at kind of a quick recount of the events that have happened, um, just in case we've forgotten it. Um, number one, October 7th, Hamas, uh, which is uh, the, the leadership structure over. Uh, there, there are two major Palestinian um, potential proto-states in Israel right now, um, the West Bank and then Gaza. So they're very different from each other. One, they're they're ruled by different entities. Um, Gaza Strip is actually run by Hamas. Hamas, we know, this, this is not made up, we know Hamas has actually a uh, been deemed a terrorist organization. Hamas has uh, had uh, funding and backing by the Iranian, Iranian government. Um, and we also know, based upon just reports on the ground. Not everybody in Gaza actually is, is, is welcoming of Hamas's leadership, that there is a heavy-handed uh, totalitarianism form of government that they have set up within uh, that particular region of Gaza. Gaza, But with that, on October 7th, Hamas launched large-scale attack on the southern uh, uh, border of Israel uh, by sea, by land, by air. Um. 1,400-plus were murdered, thousands were wounded, 240 were taken hostage. Some have called this Israel's 9-11. So again, if you forgot our 9-11, that was a significant moment. I remember exactly where I was at. Some of you guys might not have even been born or might not even remembered it because you were too young, but most of us that were of that age, you know exactly where you were, you know exactly what you did following uh, the circumstances that took place. You remember the emotion, the feeling, the feeling of unrest, of uncertainty, what's happening in our culture— How extensive is this? How far will this go? You've felt that. You've known that. Um, Many are calling that. This is Israel's 9-11. Israeli forces have thus uh, from then retaliated, killing upwards of 10,000 Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, This number has has been disputed. I don't know for sure, to be honest with you. I'm just giving you some of the basic reports of what I've heard. Many of those, several thousand perhaps, are probably children. Now again, uh, regardless of where you're at on the spectrum of pro Uh, Palestinian or pro-Israel or wherever, I'm just simply saying, I just want you to pause and think about the humanitarian reality here. Many, many children, imagine, the fact of the matter is there are many Palestinians that are Christians, believe it or not. There is a very high percentage of Christians in the region of Palestine, meaning they are not Muslim, they are not necessarily loyal to Hamas. In fact, they're just sort of held hostage by Hamas with their own government. They love Jesus, they're devoted to Jesus. Many of them actually even support Israel's uh, right to being in the land on autonomy, but they're held hostage into a context where they're not able to actually just simply walk away from a break out of. Many of them are dying. So I just, I want you to feel the weight of that and, and not feel as if somehow that is is taking a position for or against any uh, on this particular conflict here. And then ultimately what we see is this cycle of violence has just kind of escalated and continued and doesn't seem as if there's any end insight um, with regard to this particular thing. Um, the Hamas leader, uh, I don't want to mispronounce his name, gahazi Hamad uh, said... This recently said, Israel is a country that has no place in our land. We must remove that country because it constitutes a security, military, and political catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nation. We must... And must be finished. And we are not ashamed to say with full force. So this is important to really kind of understand the the weightiness of this. There are those that are in leadership positions. And this is not just simply in Hamas, but also um, uh, the Iranian government that, again, funds and backs. They have yearly chants where they come out and they say death To America and death to uh, the devil. In this context, it would be Israel and the removal of Israel from their land. So there, there are some very strong arguments from that particular. Um, leadership structure that that will not do not have no intention of ever even seeing Israel's right to having any form of a homeland are are adamantly opposed to it and they're not looking for peace they're not looking for arrangements they're not looking for agreements they're looking for the elimination of the Israeli people from that particular place in the world, okay? So just you got to pause and think about that. If, if you're un, unaware of that, do some research. It's, it's all around there. Again, it's in both left-leaning news sources, on right-leaning news sources. You can watch Bill Maher. Uh, again, he's very clearly identifies himself as a very strong liberal. He is not a Christian. He is an atheist. Again, he's very good buddies with Sam Harris and a lot of these guys. And, and he acknowledges the fact of all the things that I'm saying right here. So I'm not, this is not from a Christian angle or an evangelical perspective. This is simply information that is out there in the open for everyone to identify and accept and recognize. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to take a little bit of a step backward, and I want to assess the context because, again, this Hamas leader says Israel is a country that has no place in the land or in our land or in this land. So I wanted to and stepping back, really kind of ask the question a little bit about what is the land and really try to identify. So we'll go through a handful of things right here. And again, I got a lot of content to cover here this morning. And my, my hope is to be done with part two and to be done with this message today. Um, and, and I have, I feel like I have to. So um, I might go a little bit fast. And again, information will be available through the podcast if I go too fast. Or you can take photos like a lot of you guys are doing. Good job. Good um, job. So number one, we see this idea of the land is um, 10 time zones away. It's pretty far. The land, the word the land, appears some 2,500 times throughout the Bible almost. You can get the exact number up up there. Um, The size of it is about 150 miles by Fifty miles. If you're familiar with the phrase from Dan to Beersheba, it's a statement that gets utilized throughout the, the, the throughout the Bible. It's just a way of referencing the the perimeters of the land. About 150 miles to 150 miles by 50 miles. So I want you to think about 150 miles. So uh, from here to LA is about 150, uh, maybe 190 miles or so, something like that. So imagine hopping in a car, driving down to you know LA area or Thousand Oaks area. That's about 150 miles. That's the, the entirety of the length of the land of. Israel. And 50 miles is like, what, What from here to Buellton, maybe? Something like that, maybe a little bit closer? Uh, That's the extent of it as far as width is concerned. Um, The elevation of the land from Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet high. It's always, throughout every day of the year, covered in snow. Um, You can go there today in the midst of the the heat of summer, and you'll have snow up there. You can go skiing. It's awesome. It's beautiful up there. Um, 43 miles away um, from Mount Hermon is... Uh, the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with the Sea of Galilee, Jesus kind of spent a lot of time down there, 43 miles away. That's 700 feet below sea level. Um, And then if you were to go further down south, uh, you get to the area of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea sea level, by the way. It is the lowest place on planet Earth. Lowest place on planet Earth. That's kind of crazy. And then you got Jerusalem sitting at around 3,000 feet above sea level. So if we were to go to the very top of the grade, um, you know, here on Central Coast, uh, just a little bit higher than that would be where Jerusalem is. It's one of the reasons why every time people will say, we went up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is always, you're going up to it um, from an elevation standpoint. Um, the climate, you have the west, which is typically green and fertile. The east, you typically have is uh, desert. Um, vegetation, there's around 3,000 species of plants, which is crazy. There's around 4,000 species of birds. They actually say that uh, Israel is one of the most notable places in the entire planet where you can get more species of bird locked into this small concentrated piece of property. All right, let's jump in a little bit and understand a little bit about uh, the the land and the people of Israel more specifically um, throughout history. So we'll go through a handful of these things. And before we yeah thank you I want to I want to make a real quick uh, reference to Saint Jerome if you're familiar with him he had this great quote he said this five Gospels record the life of Jesus four you will find in books and the one you will find in the land they call quote unquote holy read the fifth Gospel. And the world of the four will open up to you. And that's true. If you've ever been to Israel, you know exactly how true this is. Like, you go to Israel, you walk through the land, you begin to realize, like, whoa, this is where Jesus did this. And this is where, you know, Nehemiah did that. And this is, this is insane. The, the, the breadth and the depth of history is, is pretty, pretty profound. All right, let's talk a little bit about um, ancient biblical history I'll go through these. Again, I'm not going to touch on all of them. This is the time where you whip out your camera, and this is where I also give hives to all of our tech support people because there's so much content on here. So um, sorry, but not sorry. Um, so I'm just going to go through more of the highlighted ones. So um, the land has been populated by Jewish people for 2000, since 2000 B.C. So we're talking 4,000 years of some form of presence of Jewish people in this particular area we call, quote-unquote, the land. So 1900 BC Abraham is called by God he left this particular region of called the Ur of the Chaldeans which is probably believed to be somewhere around um, Babylon ancient or modern Babylon and uh, he's called by God to be the father of this Jewish nation. He's given this land. God gives him this land. Again, reference last week, we talked a little bit about that. And around 1850 B.C., Jacob, his uh, son, grandson, I should say, dwells in the land until there's this famine that forces his migration down to Egypt. The several hundred years pass. The people of Israel become numerous and grow. They're living down in the land of Egypt. As far as we know, there's no more of a Jewish presence in the land during this time. It's like they lived in clans. They lived in families and tribes, and the entire tribe of the people of Israel descended down in the region of uh, Egypt, and then they became enslaved. You guys are familiar with the story of the Passover. This is a little bit of the biblical history. And then um, God raises up Moses. He brings them out of Egypt into their, quote-unquote, homeland, the land flowing with milk and honey. Again, history transpires, several hundred years go by, David becomes king, his own son Solomon builds the first temple uh, in Jerusalem. Um, So what you see today in Jerusalem where the Dome of the Rock currently stands was the ancient area where the original temple from Solomon probably no doubt would have existed. Um, again, you have a little bit more history transpiring. The n- nation of Israel is divided, north and south. Uh, and you ultimately, between Israel and Judah, by around the B- 800s BC, uh, the people of Israel as a nation are going Fast and furious into all forms of idolatry, and as a result, of injustice. We saw this last week that uh, injustice always follows idolatry. We have mentioned, and it's worthy of mentioning again, if you're ever looking around the world and you're like, there's an injustice here, my challenge to you is follow that injustice up tr- upstream until you get to the idolatry. And if you're unwilling to address the idolatry, then you're really not willing to do business with the injustice i say that again. Unless you're willing to do business with the idolatry, you're really not doing business with the injustice. You will never be able to get to the heart of the injustice. All you're doing is virtue signaling. Stop it. Deal with the idolatry. Deal with the heart issue. Get your heart right with Jesus. Invite people to get their heart right with Jesus. Otherwise, the injustice will just perpetuate. It will take different shapes. It will be dressed and clothed in different clothing, but it will still be an injustice. Deal with idolatry, and the injustice will begin to be dealt with. But what God did is because he he did not like the injustice nor the idolatry, he raised up these prophets. And these prophets spoke uh, critically against the leadership of the people of Israel. Again, you can follow them in the stories of like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, um, many of them. And they addressed the idolatry and the injustices of the people of the land. Um, and they were basically telling, like, unless you guys change this land that you think is a guarantee of yours, you will lose it. You will lose the land. You will go into exile. And guess what happened? Well, you guessed it. They went into exile. And so what we see by 722, the people of Israel, they are conquered by the Assyrians. Judah ends up getting conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, again, fast forward a little bit. we see that solomon 's temple ultimately was destroyed, ransacked, all of this stuff was taken off in the Babylon and here are the people of Israel and by 5 hundred thirty eight they're actually taken, uh, sorry, um, they 're they're they're actually taken off into exile, and here they are in exile for seventy plus years uh, there 's a lot of prophetic literature that 's written during this t- particular time period, and then what we ultimately see is around five hundred thirty eight they end up returning back into the land again. So there's a return to the land. It's their ancestral land that they have uh, been given by God all the way back to 2000 B.C. And so we see in around 520 B.C., there's a temple that's rebuilt in Jerusalem. Next slide. And You guys doing okay? You guys doing all right? Okay, good. Both of you, like nerdy type people, you're like, this is awesome. The rest of you, my my apologies, though I'm not really sorry. Um, Anyways, uh, I'll wake you up in just a few moments here, so just chill. So as we continue, um, we see that the... Grecian Empire arises, and the Persian conquer the Persian. The Persians are, you know, we find kind of on the world stage with the Egyptians and the Syrians. They end up taking occupation of the particular land. 167 B.C. You have what's called the Hasmonian uh, Revolt. Uh, this is, if you're familiar with uh, Jacob Maccabee or the Maccabean Revolt, revolt. Um, if you're familiar with Hanukkah, by the way, this is where Hanukkah comes from. Um, in fact, in chapter 10, which we didn't get to yesterday or last week or today, uh, it actually tells us the very next. Verse that we'll get into. It says this was done during the feast of dedication. So literally everything that we're reading about right now in John chapter ten takes place during this. Particular, it's a it's a way of remembering this uh, incredible miracle uh, that took place as a result of the Maccabean revolt against um, those that were. Um, in occupation of their land. All right, uh, 70 BC, we see the Romans uh, conquer the people of Israel, and then there's a new form of occupation. So the people of Israel, here's what I want you to see. The people of Israel are in the land, though they don't have freedom over the land. They are, are, they are an oppressed people group um, under the occupation from, in this context, of the Roman boot. Um, Herod the Great if you're familiar with him he improves the temple we, we call it the second temple this massive project so in other words if you were to go to Israel today or if you see the images of the western wailing wall or people are out there that, that was actually built by King Herod in this particular time the, the stones still to this day stand you can go there you can touch them you can walk alongside them, and they're mind blowing uh, what Herod was able to accomplish right um, still there to this day so again that was when that was uh, taking place. Uh, 6 BC, somewhere around there. Again, there's all sorts of dispute exactly the time frame when Jesus came, uh, but we'll just put that up there for now. Uh, Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem, and then later on, after Jesus' life, we see the Romans come in, they destroy the temple. And as a result of that, what's called this the diaspora or the diaspora begins. The people of Israel, the Jewish nations, they flee their homeland because of. Uh, unsafety and insecurity as a result of what's happening. So let's jump forward a little bit. Um, so while these communities of Jews, many of them remained in the land, many were dispersed uh, for, this, for their own safety, all the way to like Europe, Africa, the Baltics, Middle East, Russia. In 1948, uh, we begin to see the UN establish the state of Israel and the nation of Jews. So with that, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, kind of the history of modern state of Israel. So hopefully all of this will make sense as we jump into the final part of this. I'll just do this little segment here. The Jews lived largely as middlemen minorities. If you're unfamiliar with that phrase, just go ahead and Wikipedia is a phrase that was used by several different sociologists. One, most notably a guy by the name of Thomas Sowell. If you're unfamiliar with him, become familiar with him. The guy is... I think one of the brightest minds alive over the past 100 years. Phenomenal, phenomenal writer. Um, He speaks of middlemen minorities. These are a class of people that live within a community that had uh, a lot of uh, responsibility of basically living, kind of making money. And many of them succeeded. Many Jewish people throughout um, the past couple thousand years, they succeeded very well, they got to high levels of institutions and authority and elite status, and then many of them just kind of like were part of this typical status. So, uh, there was a lot of success throughout that. And ultimately, what we see is uh, Jews live largely as middlemen and minorities, and they suffered tremendous persecutions and anti Semitism. So, one particular count between 1881 and 1884, three years, I want you to think about this, three years. In the Russian Empire alone, there were at least 200 recorded pogroms. If you're unfamiliar with a pogrom, a pogrom is not just simply a riot. It is a staged, organized event where people come out after a particular minority people group, and they slaughter them. Chase them down, hunt them down, and slaughter them. Do your research, do your homework, figure out what a pogrom is. If you've never seen Fiddler on a Roof, it starts out with a pogrom. This is what happens. Uh, So there were these Jewish communities living peaceably, farmers, taking care of life and doing whatnot. And then often, oftentimes as a result of just pure hatred for them as a minority middleman, they would go in large groups of people. They would hunt them down. They would take them out of their houses. They would rape their wives. They would kill their children. They would do some form of torture of a wife in front of the father. Um, and if that was not enough, as you were a man of the house trying to go find the authorities, you'd go find a police. And then you'd find out that the police is not on your side. He's on the side of the pogrom. Where do you go? This was the situation all throughout Europe, all throughout the region of the Baltics, for Jews for a very long time, and it culminated in the late 1800s. And so what we have is kind of the beginning of the 1890s uh, of the Zionist movement. I'm sure this is a phrase that many of you guys are familiar with. It was a nationalistic movement that was born to reestablish a Jewish homeland in their ancestral land, led by a guy by the name of Theodore Herzl. Um, I don't have a whole lot of time to go into who Theodore Herzl is. Do your own research. I would encourage you to check him out. Uh, he, was, he, was not a, he was not a loyal Jew. I mean, he, in other words, he would consider himself an atheist. He was not someone that, like, looked to Yahweh God and says, I want to figure out how to follow Yahweh God as best as I can. He was, he was, he was a secular Jew. In fact, some of these Jews that had gone through severe forms of suffering like this, they were simply just looking at the landscape and saying, we are an unsafe people group we don't know what to do now he was a an educated elite um, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so he was able to arise. He had all sorts of power. He was a very well-known and recognized guy, and as a result of that, he used his elite status to basically mobilize um, Jews from around the world by forming kind of an official um, means of saying, maybe, maybe this is time to hunt down, to return back to the land in order to provide for Jews all around this diaspora, a place of safety. So this is the beginning of the Zionist movement. Now, again, like I said, I really want to reiterate, this was not a religious movement. It was, In fact, in many cases, it, was, it had various forms of socialism and communism and various forms of things of that nature. But the point of the matter is, this was a way of trying to bring about preservation for a people group that are being hunted down and going through uh, tremendous forms of suffering. In 1917, I realize I just skipped a lot of years here, but we come to what's called the Balfour Declaration. Again, these are more notable moments throughout history. Um, The British... Oftentimes, or the British took over that particular region of Palestine um, right after, if you're familiar with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, it's kind of hard for us to even wrap our heads around the extent of the Ottoman Empire, but if you can think about the entire Middle East, and it was all just one color, right? That's, and it just says Ottoman Empire. This, this is it. And they had that particular region. And they didn't have a whole lot of interest in that particular region, and so when uh, the Ottoman Empire broke apart just around the time of World War I, um, the British come in, and they they start making promises to the people of the land, which are the Palestinian people that are living there. They're making promises to the Jewish people. They're making promises to all sorts of other people, and the British—kind of what the British do—they're like playing all sides. And as a result of that, this uh, Balfour Declaration begins to arise, um, uh, promising some form of a home for the Jewish people. By the 1920s and 30s, again, now all of this is pre-pre uh, World War Two. 1920s and 30s, there's an increased Jewish immigration to land under British mandate. Um, local air population opposed a Jewish state. Conflict between Zionist paramilitaries and Arab forces begin to escalate. So imagine um, the land dwellers that were there. Um, many of them are are sensing this overwhelming movement of, of foreigners coming to the land. Now again, don't think of Jews as being this monolithic group. You've got people from Poland. You've got people from Russia. You've got people from um, you know, all parts of the world. They don't even speak the same language. They don't even have the same culture. They're very diverse. There is no unity that's going on here, other than the fact that there's this linkage to this ancestral place they know as the land. It's the only thing that's going on in there. In fact, there was so much division within that. So that the, the whole idea of Zionism, the dream of Zionism, to, to unite these people of such incredibly vast differences around the land was a, was a pretty major feat. There's a whole lot more to, to unpack, which I don't have time to get into as well. But as there's this increased... Um, movement into the land, you have also this conflict that's rising because the Arab population that has been there for many, many years, uh, in some cases being forced off the land, being driven away, or being felt to be made uncomfortable, and not really certain as to what the intent is, and again, like I said, the, the British are kind of playing a lot of weird sides that are going on here, so there's, there's not a lot of clarity as to what's happening. All they know is that there's this increased um, uh, population of people that are speaking you know, Polish and Russian and Ukrainian, and no one really knows uh, who they are and why they're moving into the neighborhood. And as a result of that, it's causing this problem. So then we come to the Nazi genocide. Uh, Jews make this determined resolve. They look at that, and as a result of that, they're like, like, nobody's really standing up for us. We have to figure out a way to get our homeland, no matter what. That was kind of the idea. That was the resolve. And the Zionist movement kicked in. Next slide. As we move on, uh, 1947, the British announced a withdrawal, uh, turning the UN to uh, vote uh, to a partition to separate the Jewish Arab states. Uh, May 1948, the modern state of Israel declares independence on the UN partition plan. Neighboring Arab states invade but are repelled by Israel. And this is an important thing as well because this is, uh, right after this takes place, Israel es- essentially says, all right, we're we're <laughs> we're a nation now. It's official, like it's official. And the neighboring uh, populations uh, Obviously didn't appreciate that, and especially the neighboring Arab countries did not uh welcome that or accept that and as a result of that, there was an invasion that took place, and israel uh, as a result of that. Invasion pushed back and defended themselves and defended their borders. Uh, Then in 1949, Israel is admitted as a member of the UN. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, they become refugees, displaced from their homes. Borders are set through a series of armistice agreements for security. And and, in some ways, it'd be really frank, this is is a tragic moment that began to happen for a lot of... In fact, this begins to be uh, one of the foundational stones of a lot of the modern-day conflict. Um, If you guys are familiar with the Trail of Tears... In American history, the trail of tears, when a large population, I think it's from Kentucky and Georgia and some other areas like that, where Native Americans are driven off of their land and forced to migrate uh, west um, because their zones have been taken away from them. they Essentially, you know, again, whether or not this would have been through an agreement that the leaders of their tribes uh, negotiated with American people and then the people themselves suffered. This was something similar that was probably going on within this particular. There's a lot of displacement that was happening and this kind of uh, began the, to sow a lot of these seeds. So 1967 was commonly known as the Six-Day War. Israel recaptures uh, East Jerusalem, West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, Egypt, expanding control beyond 1947 UN plan. They end up giving much of that back, um, but keeping presence in some of those particular areas. All right, in summary, the founding of an independent state of Israel combined with the tactics of, of the secular Zionist movement backed by the British Empire, they sowed seeds of ongoing conflict with Palestinians and neighboring Arab states to this day. Here we go. <laughs> Let me catch my breath. <laughs> you guys doing okay? Alright, there's a lot. That was a lot. We just covered a lot. So what I want to do right now is I wanna just I actually want to kind of finish with some final thoughts. What why does this matter? Why does this matter? Um, there's a lot of reasons I can spend digesting and unpacking why this matters, but I really just want to focus on one. Um, again, if I had a lot more time, I probably would give you like five or six different points we can go through them, but I just really want to focus on a specific one because I think this sort of encapsulates the majority of all this and actually brings us back to where we started, and hopefully this will all make sense. Um, so, for example, I think, why does this matter? Why does the whole Israel land context matter? Um, I also want to just address, him before I jump into that, Um, there's probably, again, a lot of questions that you guys have in your mind, like, what about... Um, injustices that are being done by Hamas or Israel on the land um, doesn 't Israel have a right to defend itself and doesn 't you know there may be a lot of questions i 'm not answering to you right now i 'm more than happy to answer those questions as much as i 'm able to immediately afterwards or you can just uh, write them up both them and I, like I said, I promise I will do uh, I will answer those questions for you as best as i 'm able to um, but the point that I want to make is this and I, by the way yes I do believe that nations should have a right to to protect their borders of course, especially from uh, terrorist activities Activity. And what happened on that particular day was absolutely terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, what's happening even today in terms of retaliation, my heart breaks for the many, many thousands that have been murdered as a result of this. So as a Christian, we should not have to sit back and kind of feel like, well, I can't show empathy towards this side because, and it means I'm taking, no, 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 we're called to show empathy and compassion and feel some sense of, Uh, 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 frustration over this type of thing. And we should not have to feel as if somehow that's being disloyal to what God has set in motion with regard to the people of Israel. Again, remember, like I said, God bakes into the very literature that we call the Bible a self-critique. I mean, again, you just just read the the prophets. Uh, I just have been reading Ezekiel a lot over the past few days, and Ezekiel, we're going to read from this, Ezekiel has a very, very lengthy and strong critique against the people of Israel against the leaders of Israel, you can't call Ezekiel anti-Semitic. I mean, by the reasoning of today's world, it's like anything critical said against the nation of Israel should not be misconstrued as being anti-Semitic. The the prophetic literature literature already kind of points it out. And again, I, I, I do think that Nations do have a right to defend themselves. Israel should have a right to defend itself from the wickedness. And I don't think the same goals are in motion with regard to that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to focus on really the relevant question for us. Why does all this matter? And why does Israel and their land matter? I think number one, the big answer to this is really the faithfulness of God. If you want to think of it this way, the covenantal commitment of Yahweh to the people is at stake. So I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to wrap this up. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 41 through 44 says this. God says, when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries from where you have been scattered, I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to you and your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways and all the deeds which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves. For all of you will remember your ways and all your deeds and what you have done to defile yourselves. And you will loathe yourselves. And it says, in all the evils that you've committed, verse 44. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is God's way of basically saying, look, You do not deserve the land. I didn't call you because you did something special to deserve this land to the people of Israel. In fact, it's it's in spite of who you are and what you've done. You've, You've defiled yourselves. You've defiled this land. You've Made idols, And again, this is right in the heart of this incredible prophetic literature in the book of Ezekiel, where he's just coming down strong against the religious leaders, the political leaders, uh, because of the injustices, because of the idolatries that they've basically allowed to continue to go on. In other words, if you want to put it in this context, they lived as a secular or a pagan type of a state um, and causing all forms of evil and wickedness. And God says... But instead of me judging you for your sins, though you deserve it, and removing you from the land, though I've said that I would do that, instead, for my name's sake, because of my glory, I'm going to do something unexpected. I'm going to bring a resolve to this. And it's not until we come to the person of Jesus, next slide, that we begin to see the extent of Yahweh's faithfulness to deal with sin. This brings us back to the initial thing that I had said at the very beginning. Israel has had this long history of conflict, unrest, and exile, and Jesus sets himself as the good shepherd who will bring it ultimately to an end. How? How does Jesus, on behalf of Yahweh, bring to conclusion, bring to an end this life of sin and unrest and exile and conflict? By taking it upon himself on the cross taking the judgment they deserve and starting a whole new world when he rises again from the dead like this is exactly why jesus would be would describe himself i am the good shepherd i will lay my life down for my sheep Jesus' aim is to bring about healing and wholeness. And I want to finish with some just final thoughts as I had kind of mentioned. So the little last slide. I want to just talk a little bit real quickly as far as actionable items. Again, we looked at this last week, but I want to finish this up. And as I'm talking, I'm going to have Mike come on up. He's going to lead us in the closing song worship. So we'll do this simultaneously. Number one, what should we do? What could we do? Number one, just devote yourself to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, like now is the best time than ever. To devote yourself to Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, devote yourself to Jesus. Like, like we're in a moment right now in our world where it's, it's crazy. It's, it's absolute craziness. And I can't think of a more important time for us to really examine and think about and consider where our life is with Jesus. Devote yourself to Jesus. Secondly, pray for peace, both Israelis and Palestinians. Thirdly, mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. We're called to be those people that feel, that sense, what's happening. And then, fourthly, form some degree of moral clarity. Like, there is a moral clarity to be found, and we can call evil, evil. As I mentioned, what happened on that first week of October was, was evil. People dying in the streets is, is, is evil. Anywhere where death reigns, there, there's an evil darkness that's at play there that Jesus wants to undo. Uh, having children die in a hospital is evil, whether that be as a result of retaliation strikes or human shield scenarios that are taking place. And we know that that's happening as well. It's, it's evil. There's an evil. And we can weep with that. We can feel that deep sense. We can pray for healing as a result of that. Uh, fifthly, I mentioned resist. Propaganda. There's a lot of propaganda out there. There are a lot of forms of misinformation. Um, Someone, one of the questions that was asked is, how do we discern what's propaganda and what's not? Again, I'll I'll address that. Uh, That that becomes tricky, becomes challenging. But I think there is a way to first of all realize that we can. Recognize that there is a lot of propaganda out there that will try to misshape and misform our ideas and our understanding about everything that's happening in this context. And then, sixthly, lastly, remember that there's this reality of a spiritual warfare that's happening and that we're invited to stand firm and stand strong in the power of God, that we can resist this temptation to feel like we have to somehow uh, be swept up in a form of emotionalism um, or fear or anxiety, that there's, a, there's an ability for us to stand firm and stand strong and to become people that are devoted to the way of Jesus. If you're questioning what that is, just take a look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the charter of Jesus, his kingdom message. It's what we're called to live according to. And so with that being said, I just want to finish with just a time to let's all stand and respond And it's just a time to remind ourselves of the kingdom that we're invited into. And if you're, again, here this morning, you're not a Christian, my invitation to you would be to to ask Jesus to wash you, to cleanse you, to be reminded of the faithfulness that God has for us and store for us, and we can turn our hearts over to him and he transforms us and makes us new and invites us to become people that live in his kingdom in this world as an agent, bringing life in this world, preaching life in this world, um, being able to have compassion in this world so that's my invitation to us this morning so let me pray and then we'll sing and we'll wrap it up so Jesus now we, we do pray again just for peace we pray God for protection over the Israeli people that are in the midst of a kind of an existential crisis right now the amount of uh, hatred uh, that has been poised against them throughout the world um, has mounted and Uh, We pray for your protection upon them. We pray for the leaders that they don't just simply make decisions that are based upon secular mindset. God, we we pray for a movement of your spirit to sweep over those people. We pray for a movement of your spirit to sweep over Palestinian people that are suffering. We pray for healing. We pray for those that are on the ground uh, in both areas, both regions, providing aid and assistance and help and prayer and guidance. We pray for help. And so, Jesus, we ask that here we are thousands of miles away from any form of incident over there, living in relative peace and safety, drinking our nice $4 cup of coffee, and we can so easily forget the pain that's in this world. And so we ask you, Father, help us to be the type of people that just bring life into other people's lives by way of the gospel.